Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, December 31st. On the show this week, Conservative leader Andrew Shears says the Prime Minister is getting it all wrong when it comes to trade and ethics. We'll ask him why. Then, Prime Minister Trudeau promised two years ago to reset relations with Canada's Indigenous people. Has he? We'll ask Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And we'll head to Wilf and Ada's, a diner a few blocks south of Parliament Hill for our occasional Food for Thought series. Today, we'll break bread with NDP stalwart Nathan Cullen. But first, late last month, Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer called on Finance Minister Bill Morneau to resign over ethics-related controversies surrounding his personal finances. The Finance Minister says he's followed the rules and done what the Ethics Commissioner asked. So why is that not enough for the opposition? And joining me now is Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer. Happy holidays. Thanks for being here, Mr. Scheer. Nice to see you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's uh, to you as well. Thank you. So it is New Year's Eve, and I thought I'd start off by asking you, what is your family doing for the big night? We have a great neighborhood, and a lot of young families are nearby. And normally on New Year's Eve, we do an apps and zerts party where some of the neighbors uh, come over to one of our houses. We haven't picked which one yet. The kids all watch uh, holiday movies, Christmas movies, that type of thing. And the adults kind of hang out in the kitchen, and we do... uh, a uh, uh, New Year's countdown, usually in an Eastern time, so we have a time-shifting package <laughs> on our cable package. Easier for so the kids to stay Exactly, so we'll do a, a kids countdown at like 10 o'clock and then uh, an adult one, more, more you know, well, the, the midnight one for Saskatchewan time. I bet we'll enjoy the party. Looking forward to it. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, to start off uh, uh, by asking you about something the Prime Minister said to us last week. We asked him, of course, about the ethics controversy invo- involving his finance minister, and he was very critical of the opposition for talking about it. In fact, he said that uh, the finance minister did do more and that the opposition is spending all of their time on personal attacks and on supposed ethical issues uh, and they are not talking about the economy. Kind of insinuating that everything's going okay, so why would the opposition be talking? That's why the opposition is focusing on Bill Morneau. What's your response to that? It's a very condescending attitude to have and very flippant. Uh, to lump in serious questions about ethical behavior and whether or not the finance minister, the person who has the, the, the ability, the power to regulate our economy, whether or not that that person is following ethics rules, those are not personal attacks, those are legitimate questions. And I've noticed a, a disturbing trend with this Prime Minister that when you, uh, when he gets questioned on, on many different issues, he goes right to that default, well, you're attacking me personally or, or you're attacking the government personally. I think it's a defense mechanism that shows that he's not taking these, these issues seriously. Bill Morneau tabled legislation that affects companies like Morneau Chappelle uh, and their ability to sell pension plans to uh, private companies. Uh, he also held ownership of shares in Morneau Chappelle far beyond uh, when he led Keynes to believe that, that he divested himself. Those are serious questions. We want to know, did he meet with the Ethics Commissioner before he tabled that bill? He still hasn't been able to say yes or no. That's why we called for the resignation, not, uh, not just because of incompetence and not just because of uh, the attack on small business and bigger deficits, but because he cannot come clean, he cannot be transparent honest and accountable about his behavior. That's when people lose trust. Those are not personal attacks. Those are legitimate questions about the integrity of our public institution. Does he have a point, though, when he says that you you guys don't really have much to oppose when it comes to, for example, the economy, something traditionally your party has been outspoken on? I think there were 80,000 jobs added last month. The economy is growing at a, at a, at a rate much faster than or, or bigger than it has in the past. 
Does he have a point? We've been very vocal, very critical. We have a lot to oppose when it comes to a government that tried to demonize small business owners and threaten all the jobs that go along with that. The millions of Canadians who work at a small business, we were their voice. We stood up against this government's uh, plan. To, to, to hike their taxes and threaten those jobs. We've been very vocal on the massive deficits and what that will mean for future generations of Canadians having to pay back more and more debt racked up under this Liberal government. We've been very critical of the overspending, everything from a hockey rink that costs $7 million that'll be torn down in a few weeks uh, to, uh, to mismanaging the Phoenix pay system and public servants not getting uh, their paychecks. Do you Just give them any credit, though, for how the economy is doing? Well, look... Because <laughs> when the economy was doing, you know, when it weathered the storm under, under your party when they were government, you guys took credit for that. Well, Can I, you give them a bit of credit? Well, I believe the actions we took helped do that. The actions this Liberal government is taking isn't, isn't, isn't having a positive impact in the, on the economy. They said they wanted, that they would go into deficits to spend more on infrastructure. The, the parliamentary budget officer says that uh, there's a lot of infrastructure dollars that isn't being that aren't being spent. Um, they just announced 500 million dollars for infrastructure projects in Asia. Uh, raising taxes on the top one percent of Canadians under this Liberal government has actually resulted in them paying less tax. So they can't even. So you think the economy is agenda. growing? And has nothing to do. With I what think the it's growing despite doing. what the government's doing. They've done everything they can to to make it harder. You mentioned trade a little bit ago, and I wanted to ask you about that. You, you recently tweeted that you met with Japan's ambassador to Canada, and in the tweet you said, and I quote, I express my disappointment in the way Justin Trudeau recently treated one of our closest trading partners. Conservatives are committed to the TPP and the Canadian jobs it will create. Why would you tweet that? I wanted to let the, the Japanese ambassador know that the Conservative Party of Canada is still committed to the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. It's so important for our economy to open up new markets and it's a, a very large economic trading block that Justin Trudeau is, has walked away from in a very erratic display, uh, you know, not showing up to the final meetings, catching our, our trading partners by surprise. That's not a way you treat an ally and a value trading partner. And I wanted to ensure that uh, that the signal was sent that not everybody agrees with what Justin Trudeau has done, that, that we don't, uh, we, we're disappointed not only in the policy decision, but also in the manner in which it was done. Do you think, though, by criticizing what's happening inside our borders, that weakens our hand in negotiating with with actors outside our borders? I actually think it helps strengthen our hand to know, for our allies to know that there are people in How Canada. How would that strengthen that, Canada's Because hand? It's, it, it lets people know that there are people in Canada, it lets Japan, it lets our trading partners know that there are, are groups and, and, and political parties in Canada that are that are uh, open and committed to, to free trade. So not to give up on us, not to walk away and, and, and leave Canada out in the cold, that there is a, a possibility for uh, trade deals to be pursued, especially as an opposition party encourages and, and pressures the government to do just that. I don't think Justin Trudeau should get a free Pass when he does things like that, and I think is there it's no good. conceivable reason in your mind, though, that he would have done that? No well, justifiable reason. Has he explained it? I mean, I'd love to. Hear, we, we've asked questions in the House of Commons. We've we've asked him to clarify his actions. I still don't know that that even his own minister understands that. We saw what happened in China. You know, Justin Trudeau couldn't even negotiate a photo op with the Chinese government, and now we're. But you're opposed to free trade with China, weren't you happy that he walked away oh, with look, some of the concerns <laughs> you had? Look, if, if Justin Trudeau can't successfully negotiate a photo op with the Chinese government, I'm, you know, I think. I think we should all breathe a sigh of relief that, uh, that 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 he hasn't embarked further down that road right now. Yes, philosophically, I think there are major concerns about having a free trade deal with China at this time. But my point is basically that he has been unable to articulate what his uh, free trade agenda is. I, I believe I've come to the conclusion that he's not actually in favor of free trade. That he is uh, uh, that, that, that he's he's come home empty-handed uh, from uh, from the TPP, walked out on that. Uh, he. Uh, 
uh, you know, has been unsuccessful in engaging uh, with China. Uh, and, you know, I'm starting to wonder, okay, well, you know, where is, where is the evidence of that? Well, on that note, I know you're supposed to oppose, <laughs> but before we go, it is Christmas and in the giving spirit. Mm -hmm. If you had to, you know, name the most positive quality about Justin Trudeau and your other uh, counterpart, Jagmeet Singh, <laughs> what would they be? Look, on a personal level, uh, I, I do appreciate uh, both Justin Trudeau's and Jagmeet uh, Singh's dedication to, to public service. You know, we disagree vociferously on things like uh, uh, policy questions and, and whether or not they're actually capable of delivering what they promise, but it, it's a big sacrifice, and both of those individuals are, are getting up every morning and leaving their family behind to go fight for what they believe in, and I respect that on a fundamental level. When I was Speaker of the House of Commons, I got to appreciate that from mm -hmm. no matter what the party you belong to, no matter what the ideas you're fighting for, even if I disagree with them, it, it is a sacrifice and it is a challenge and it's not easy. And I know that Justin Trudeau, you know, truly does believe that uh, that he's 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 doing what's best for, as he believes for, for Canada. Uh, so I respect that on that level. Disagree with him right. and uh, would surely point out when I think that it uh, hasn't gone well. That's my <laughs> job. And but I do wish him all the best for the holiday season and for 2018. Well, we'll leave it on that very positive note then. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Mr. Shear, and happy New Year to you Thank and your you family. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Appreciate it. On the camp campaign trail two years ago, then-candidate Trudeau promised, if elected, he would reset the relationship between the government and Canada's Indigenous people. But given recent problems with the missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry and the ongoing crisis on some reserves across the country, has that really happened? Earlier, I sat down with Perry Bellegarde, National Chief for the Assembly of First Nations, to find out. Have a listen. Thank you so much for joining us, National Chief Belgard. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. It's good to be here. I wanted to start off by asking you, we're about two years into this, this government's mm -hmm. mandate. At the beginning, at the outset of the mandate and during the campaign, the Prime Minister made very specific promises when it came to the government's relationship with Indigenous people in this country, specifically saying and promising that he would reset that relationship. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's happened? I think it's, it, it has happened. I think it's moving in the right direction. Um, you know, I think back to the last two years, uh, he's, came, he's come to our Chiefs Assemblies twice to talk to the Chiefs of Canada. And on the first time that he came, he committed to five things. One, that there would be an inquiry into missing, murdered, and these women and girls. Two, that all 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would be implemented. Three, the 2% funding cap would be lifted and we'd find a process to work towards long-term, sustainable, predictable funding. Fourth, he mentioned there'd be investments in education from K to 12 and post-secondary. Five, he said there'd be a comprehensive federal law and policy review. That was his first time. Second time he came a year ago, mentioned three things. He'll work in partnership with us to develop a national indigenous language revitalization act. Two, he'll work with us to, to develop and give a legal framework to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And three, another law and policy review. So it's moving in the right direction. And I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. Like even in, think about the 8.4 billion in the last federal budget, and then last year 3.4 billion, 11.8 billion over five years. It's better than Kelowna, but we say, because the gap is so huge mm -hmm. for First Nations people and the rest of Canadian society in terms of quality of life, it's gonna take long-term sustainable investments to close that gap. So keep investing in education and housing and water and infrastructure, you're gonna close the gap. So yes, the, the relationship has changed and I think it's moving in the right direction. Are there areas that, I mean, I've read the, that you said, you know, there are some people and there are some areas in which it could, saying that it could be moving a bit faster. Or oh, of course, be. no what, question. Could I ask you specifically, what are you hoping to see speedier action on? Well, I want to see, um, you see, you've got the legislative and the executive and judicial branch of government. 
So we're hearing good things from the judicial branch, you know, in terms of recognition of rights and title from the Supreme Court. You have the, the legislative branch saying good things, which is the prime minister and cabinet saying good things. But it's the executive branch of government that has to keep up with all those good vision statements about nation to nation and reconciliation. So all the deputy ministers, all the bureaucracies that have been there operating for many, many years have to find new, innovative and more effective and efficient ways to get these precious resources out to the communities in a more effective manner. So that's where more work needs to be done. Okay, Getting the, uh, um, the governance piece on the executive branch to keep up with what this vision is being espoused by the prime minister and cabinet ministers. That's one piece where it can be speeded up. The second thing is looking at, for example, water. Mm -hmm. We still have 130 plus boil water advisories. Uh, the parliamentary budget officer has said, you need two, two billion more dollars budgeted for in the fiscal framework if you want to meet that target of getting rid of these boil water advisories in the next three, four, five years. So that's another area. Um, I think closing this gap that I talk about all the time it's not going to happen in one fiscal year or two fiscal years. Long-term sustainable predictable investments have to be put in place and I think this government gets it. I think Canadians get it and once that gap closes, uh, it's not only good for First Nations people, you're going to have better housing, better water, better education outcomes for our kids. It's good for Canada. Why do you think the bureaucracy is sort of playing catch-up? Do you feel like it's just because of the way things have been done in the past or is there any sort of inherent bias or within the bureaucracy? Again, it's, it's not to, to totally come hard down on all the deputy ministers of bureaucracy, but for example, the Indian Act has been there since 1876. Mm -hmm. They have four to 5,000 employees there that have been doing things the same old, same old way. So, um, being open-minded to change sometimes is difficult, you know, but I would encourage everyone to look at innovative ways, uh, new ways, and think outside the box, you know, and uh, it's 2017. Everybody's talking about reconciliation. Everybody's talking about nation to nation. And uh, the Prime Minister was clear that his most important relationship to rebuild is the one between First Nations people and his government, and, it, and that means all Canadians. And so I think the bureaucrats and uh, the team that, that are there, um, can be pushed in a constructive way to be more open-minded and should and they I think be by the prime minister should they be by the prime minister and by a cabinet should that push push come from them well it's privy council privy council office uh picks all the deputy ministers it's not the prime minister it's not the pmo office it's the privy council office so um that's where you have to put some pressure and in, in, in the sense of finding more innovative thinkers you know to be in the bureaucracy because in one case the INAC bureaucracy has been there since 1876 so I, I think there is some hope in the sense that there's two new departments now. You know, there's uh, Minister Phil Potts in charge of services mm -hmm. programs and Minister Bennett is in charge of the Crown nation to nation relationship. So I think there is an opportunity for change and I think we should pursue that. You've also asked for a first minister's meeting on specifically on Indigenous issues. Why do you think that's important and have you received any assurances that that will happen? Haven't received any assurances that's going to happen. I think having a first minister's conference on indigenous issues is really fundamental um, to bring about change when you start talking about nation to nation or reconciliation. Um, you've got section 35 of Canada's constitution, which recognizes existing Aboriginal treaty rights. And we've always said it's a full box of rights. You know, governments will say, well, it's, a, it's an empty box. You know, well, we say it's a full box. And one of the most important rights in there is the inherent right to self-government or right to self-determination. But mapping out a very clear path forward takes both federal government, First Nations governments, and provincial governments. Um, the provinces have a big role to play going forward. You know, we're, always fo we're here in Ottawa and everybody focuses on the federal government. 
Well, the provincial governments and the premiers have a big role to play when it comes to lands and resources, when it comes to education and health care and social services. You know, everything that was offloaded to them in 1961 through established program financing, they're getting billions of dollars from the federal government. So we need to bring them to the table. And I think it's the prime minister that calls first minister's conferences. And I think if that was to happen in 2018 or 2019, you can put a really good constructive map going forward about uh, what does it mean nation to nation? What does this self-government look like? How can you respect First Nations jurisdiction, First Nations laws as you go forward? Because in Canada, you've got common law, you've got civil law, but there's an emerging trend now. You also have First Nations law, First Nations jurisdiction. And just mapping that out requires a space for dialogue. And that's what the First Minister's conferences can do. We're kind of running out of time, but I oh, do but I sorry. do want to specifically ask you about, I know you mentioned the five promises that the Prime Minister made yes. off the bat there, and one of them was the Missing and Murdered Indigenous mm -hmm. Women's Inquiry, which he has followed through, which which has yep. begun. Uh, you know, an, a grouping of, of chiefs not too long ago voted to mm -hmm. ask the Commissioner, Marion Buller, to resign. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that she should? Well, we follow our chiefs in assembly their direction, you know. Um, Does that mean that you think she should? It's, it's more in the sense of they have a difficult job. Mm -hmm. You know, the motion that was passed was to ask one for an extension because two years is not enough time. No question. You know, you need more time. Um, you have to to support the commissioners out of there because it's a tough job. It's a difficult job. I think that everybody should start focusing on the families first. You know, and if that can happen, I think there'd be a greater comfort level around keeping and or maintaining uh, Marion Buller because it's a difficult job and the other three commissioners. Um, as First Nations, we're taught more to be respectful and to support each other going forward. And you have to be careful of lateral violence, you know, especially against each other. Mm -hmm. and, and so if we can find good common ground and put families first, better communication, uh, more First Nations centered in terms of that, the healing process, uh, I think we can find the path going forward. Um, but I've always said this as well. We don't have to wait two years or four years for the recommendations to end violence for missing murdered just women and girls. Governments can make investments in housing, in education, and training, and transportation, and detox centers, and wellness centers, and like it can happen now. Right. So you don't need to wait. But there's a big piece too, fixing the justice systems and the policing system. That's a major piece that has to be looked at and overhauled. Are you worried because the mandate of the inquiry doesn't really include reopening, for example, cases that are thought to be not properly investigated? It doesn't sort of have that under its jurisdiction. That it could in the end come up short because you specific you know you're talking about policing and the justice mm -hmm. system it doesn't really encompass a lot of that well Is I that think a uh, it's a challenge um, and I think when we first started talking about the mandate and authority of the of the commissioners uh, it was explained that you can push the envelope as much as you can to include authorities and third-party entities such as police systems so you can interpret that as being part of that terms of reference and I think it should be done in a constructive way you know, because I met with the police chiefs two years ago, and I told them, put them on notice, chiefs of police, um, be ready and get ready, because you will be called to question and taken to task in terms of what kind of services and programs and supports and communication systems have you had with First Nations families when these cases have come up in your department, whether it be um, the RCMP, whether it be urban city police forces. So that whole review um, should be looked at within the sense of improving things. You know, and, and making things better. And, uh, so you think it's kind of open to interpret? The, yes, the mandate is a bit exactly. more open to interpretation than it's perhaps being communicated? I think it's got to be more focused on, and I think uh, people should come to the table with that in mind about improving things and making things better. Because uh, all the families we've heard in all of our assemblies, you know, 75% of them talked about the, the, 
the lack of good service from the police forces when it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, when it comes to the investigation, when it comes to communication and how it was reported back to the families. So there is work to do there in that area. And I think in order to, to fix something, you have to identify the problem first and then identify the strategy and plan to fix it going forward. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, National Chief Felgard. Appreciate your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Just a few blocks south of Parliament Hill is Wilf and Adas. Run by its namesakes for two decades, it transferred hands in 2013 and has morphed from a beloved diner into an equally beloved hipster haven. And that's where we find NDP MP Nathan Cullen today. Well, thank you so much for doing Food for Thought. I My appreciate pleasure. it. It's great to see this you. This is a lot of food for It is. I hope that's what I want to thought. start off by asking, not just about the food, but why did you choose Wilf and Ada's? Um, I found this place before it became hipster. <laughs> it, was, it was a true greasy spoon. Wilf and Ada ran it for years, and I loved it. It was just a local community place. And uh, when you're traveling a lot, finding that is nice. It's not a chain. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it feels a bit like home, even though you're not home. And then when it flipped over to a more millennial crowd, hipster it, haven, it hits yeah. their haven. It, uh, <laughs> it was a nice in a different way, so I just I've kept at it. The toughest thing is getting a table in here. Yeah, it's super busy, and yeah. it's tiny. As you can see from it's around totally us, they're tiny. very nice to let us in It's here. hard to have political conversations here, I will admit. Yeah, Because Ottawa's such a small town. Yeah, there's, there's I was just telling you times. the last time I was here, I stopped you out in the corner and saw you. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't go after you or anything. But this, yeah. is, this is why you, no revealing any yeah, uh, I didn't hear secrets anything. or anything because yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't know who's at the next table. <laughs> and what did you, you, this to me looks like a massive I'm, mound of I, food, I, I but what no is it specifically? I had no intention of doing this. Um, <laughs> I think this It looks is, amazing. Just it does look, it looks like an entire Christmas dinner hyped up and then put on a piece of bread. I'm not sure I'm up for it actually, I'll be, but I often take to go. I, I like to eat yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. and then, and I, I don't want to fall asleep during uh, committee this afternoon. We have an important one, so yes. I should not nod off on a heavy chicken gravy dinner. I didn't, I didn't realize this is what I said yes to. Oh, well, I'm sure you'll have time to eat it. I'll be happy. What'd you get? Yeah, I got um, basically eggs benedict, yeah, yeah. Um, with like olives, and yeah, I eat this a lot. I also thought, why did I order this? Because there's tons of spinach, so I will wait till after interviewing you to you eat don't, it. You don't? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm a little I've bit of a mess. I've done an entire press yeah. conference with a piece of spinach oh, in my teeth. Oh, smooth move. And then yeah. afterwards, one of our staff was like, oh, hey, by the way, <laughs> You didn't think to tell Oops, me that no. before. Oops, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I was reading up on you, although you're very, you know, you're very well known, you're on our program a lot and, and on Global a lot, um, I sort of wanted to look into some of the stuff about you that maybe we didn't know a lot about. Okay. And uh, I guess you've gone into politics at a very young age, 30, I mean, at federal politics. Federal even. politics. Yeah. Well, f coming into federal politics was my first entry into any kind of politics, like capital yeah. P. I'd always uh, been political and enjoyed it, but no, I was 30 when I first ran, and it was a bit... Uh, in hindsight, quite audacious in terms of it wasn't a safe seat. It was I was a relatively unknown candidate. All of those things, I maybe ought not to have won if you looked at it just empirically, but um, it felt right and it was good. And I, I've never regretted a moment. I was going to say, do you think you'd tell your 31-year-old self now to do it all over again? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm, I the more sober 45-year-old version of me might say, kid, you've got almost no chance. You should realize that the odds were so long, but I was uh, naive to how things worked, and I think in a way that really helped. Good thing, yeah. Because I was willing to challenge the way the campaigns ran, the way we talked to voters, a lot of those things that just, in that place and that time, worked. I mean, I think it's all timing. I think politics is so much, not, not just local races, but 
leaders, prime ministers, it's uh, general elections. I think so much is uh, hinges on timing, the mood of voters, what's just happened, and all those other factors you generally can't control. What motivated you at that age? Because I think, you know, my sister's about to be 31 in a, okay. in a month, and I just don't know if she would sit down and be like, you know, she's she wants to make a difference, but politics is wouldn't necessarily be the thing she decides to do. I had, uh, during university and then afterwards, I had done a bunch of work overseas, in South America and Africa, and I hadn't, growing up, I hadn't really considered politics, again, party politics, that important. It just felt like a bunch of old white guys yelling at each other, which in large <laughs> yeah. part it is. Wait a second. It, it, it remains. <laughs> um, but it didn't feel relevant enough to my life, like the things that I cared about, whether it was environmental issues or some of the poverty issues. I grew up with not a lot of money. It, it didn't seem like the best way to affect any change was to join a political party. That was almost the furthest thing from my mind. Um, and it was only after working some some pretty intense frontline jobs overseas and realizing how powerful politics was, how important it was to affecting sweeping change um, that I thought this was a really good time for me to try jumping in. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. It was it was not a it, it was not a plan. Let's put it that way. I wasn't sitting there as a sixteen or twenty five year old self saying I'll do this, 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 and this, and then I'll end up being a member of parliament. When it was first proposed to me, I said no. And, I said no the second time, and I think I said no the third time I was asked to run. And what changed your mind the fourth time? Well, it, uh, my, the friend who was asking me uh, used some reverse psychology, basically. <laughs> he said, yeah, you'd be a terrible candidate. We'd get killed if you were a candidate. And I was like, hey, 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 maybe, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. And he said, no, 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 you'd be awful, so let's not do it. And, and, and some other factors came in. It was just um, we were represented by a very uh, conservative person and had been for quite a while. And where I live in northern BC, um, there's a very large First Nations population. There's a large progressive voice. And all we were hearing from our representative was, was gay marriage and some other conservative issues, but nothing about things that I thought were important to be heard about as well. Do you ever see yourself doing anything different? Oh, yeah. What would, what would it be oh, yeah. and when? <laughs> I, I don't know when. I, uh, my wife and I always sit down about a year or so before every election and say, are we all in on this or are we not? Because my standard has always been as soon as I feel like someone could do this better than me and I'm seeing people come up or I'm losing the fire for it, I should get out of the way. Because the place that I represent in northern British Columbia has got hugely important issues that I think the country needs to know about and deserves the best and deserves full effort from whoever's representing them, whatever their political stripe. And no, we, we have a really open and sometimes very long conversation before elections to say, is this still what we want? Because it's a huge um, cost to my family. Mm -hmm. I've got little kids, got seven-year-old boys, and um, my wife, Diana, is incredible. Like, just the, the amount of huge adjustments in her life she has to make because we live so far from the capital. It's just a lot. It's a lot to ask, and so I, I don't. I never assume anything. I always say, let's make sure that we're our, both our hearts are in this thing. So, what do you do for your second act? Like, what? what oh, would you doing? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I have. The, I've got a bit of. Um, what did a friend of mine? She's a therapist. She said it was uh, imposter syndrome or complex. One of those things. Where, where you feel like a fraud. Uh, well, uh, fraud's a bit strong. Fraud's a bit strong. <laughs> That's my syndrome. Well, more just. Um, I, I mean, again, I didn't grow up grew up with any um, political connections or any money and so <laughs> you know if it's someone had approached me and tapped me on the back at some point during all this and said there's been a mistake you're not supposed to really be here I'd be like oh yeah, yeah. I hear I, hear yeah, I think that's every day as well yeah. Oh, yeah okay I don't think I'm alone in this but I maybe one of the few people to admit it where there's some days where 
like this afternoon in an hour I'll be asking the Prime Minister of Canada a question and I'll say well who am I who you never who? seem like that though uh, I mean from the outside right. I'm just saying you don't you, you, you seem I mean you're one of the more vocal people in your party especially oh, a on a lot of the big issues I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, well I just I try to I try to reduce them out of their position to the person and say all right is this a good person and I want to ask this good person an important question and so I try to remove the the fanfare and do you the, think Justin Trudeau is a good person yeah yeah, I do. I do. I think he's made bad decisions from time to time or can't fully see an issue just from, I don't know, his upbringing or whatever. He misses things. But I don't think uh, he's a bad person at all. I didn't think Stephen Harper was a bad person either, nor Paul Martin. I have huge respect for people who take on the leadership role. I think I see the sacrifices my family has to make. I can only imagine what it is on their side and what their families and they personally have to go through in order to fulfill that role. I have nothing but respect, even when I'm disagreeing with them, even when I think they're doing something wrong. So you decided uh, to keep challenging him in the part in the government in your yeah. current role instead of running for leadership. Yes. Uh, is that a decision that you ever regret at this point, or you're still no, cool with it? No, no. Um, I sat with the, the decision for quite a while, well, a month and a half. Felt like a long time to me. Um, after uh, the party chose to remove Tom, and I, I really gave it my full heart and mind, and I. I I was not able to get myself there to believing this was the right thing for me to do, and, uh, particularly with the kids, but that's not all of it. I, I really dislike when politicians, typically men, uh, make a decision and then either to leave politics or do something or not do something and use the family as the main reason. My family is a huge reason for things that I do, but it's not the only one. And I, just, yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't find it in my heart that this was what I was meant to do, and I thought, this is not a position I should take. You can't, you can't just pretend your way into right. saying, I want to be the national leader and I eventually want to be prime minister. I think you have to believe that in your phone. And it wasn't there for me. Why not, do you think? It's a good question. Um, I'm a bit uh, private. I'm a bit shy. I see... I, I, my mentor was Jack. Uh, that was the first leader I knew. We spent a lot of time together, a lot of time on the road. And I saw the way that that guy uh, just loved... Not just loved crowds and people he needed it like it was a almost an addiction like i'd see these who'd have these crazy days you know a five-day trip 18-hour days we're crossing three provinces a day and at the we'd be getting into the hotel it's 11 12 o'clock we have to be up at six and jack would want to go find what's going on what's like where's where's a good bar where's some good music that we can you know and i was i'd be like jack i've been on my feet for 20 hours man we're we're three hours jet lagged i'd like to go to bed i'd need a moment And, and he was built differently and so that was sort of my standard as to what you would really want to bring into this job which is that desire to constantly be in conversation with people and be okay with being a product which is something I've never fully uh, totally understood the desire to be if you know what I mean I wouldn't wish yeah. fame on my worst enemy I wouldn't, I, wouldn't. Yeah. I see it in my small ways I see people around me that are famous and I think rather you than me man like this your sense of privacy is gone so do you think that rules it out for you in the future or I, I, I think mean, people change I you know yeah. I, could, I could see myself one day being in a more mature way or embracing a role like that um, because there's aspects that I really enjoy but uh, not now I'm good I'm good now I don't I don't I don't look back I haven't looked back at any moment and said I regret this that's a good thing yeah yeah, I think that's... And that was the test I used with most of my decisions. Right. Trying to imagine forward and saying, will a future self be upset 
with the decision I'm about to make, and it never felt that way. Uh, the other thing that I read about that I had not known about you at all, and I don't know how comfortable you are talking about it, but yeah. I read that you were kidnapped once. Yeah. Uh, I've also been to Latin America. I studied South American politics. Mm. I lived in Argentina for Argentina, a while. So beautiful. It's a, the thing that really, I mean, I love there was that people are so engaged in politics because oh, it yeah. affects their lives so much, and that's what Huge. drew me there in the first place. But, but what, I mean, why were you in Latin America, and what happened? Um, at that time, um, I'd been off and on doing development work. Um, a lot of really amazing grassroots community work, uh, trying to help communities have more options in their lives, basically. These were all often subsistence, very low end of the economy communities. And at that point, I was actually doing um, some work with an NGO in Ecuador, northern Ecuador. And uh, we were, I guess, disturbing the balance of power in that region, forestry interests in that case, where we were getting a community that had been hooked and basically indentured, you know, laborers, and giving them other options and other ways to make money. And that threatened somebody high up. It turned out it was the vice president of the country. And he hired a, uh, a gang, as best as we could tell, from Colombia to kidnap us and wreck the operation. Uh, but my experience with it was short compared to uh, a friend of mine who was with us, the director of our program, who ended up kidnapped for, I don't know, a month and a half, almost. I think it, yeah, basically killed him. And, and he took my place. They were, it was an awful experience. That's terrible. And, that was, and when was that? That's a good question. That would have been like uh, 94, 95. Wow. Yeah. And how long were you, you, you were like 14 hours, I read, or was it, how long? How long did it? the whole thing last? Um, yeah, it was short. Felt long. They they played some awful uh, games as they will. Yeah, I don't think it was more than probably fourteen or fifteen hours. It started early evening and went through to the next day lunch. Basically, we were off in the way remote jungle. I mean, we were on our own, and these guys took over, and it was they had us. I've never felt that totally powerless before. I mean, they did mock rapes. They did they did all sorts of Russian roulette. I mean, these guys were, uh, yeah, they were not nice people. Has that affected anything that you've done since, or was it, did you kind of compartmentalize? I wouldn't want to say that was a, that affected my course and said, oh, I'm going to get into politics because right. of this. That, that's, that's too Linear, compact yeah. a story. Um, but realizing how powerless we were because the government was of a certain nature, um, yeah, it did, did say that you got to get at the fundamentals of some of this stuff. It's good to do the, the work at the surface where, where people's lives are day-to-day -day affected. I think that's really important. But if you're not getting at the roots, then all you're doing is constantly trying to clip the branches of problems. And, yeah, it, it made me feel, feel more empowered when I could see myself into Parliament and, and see how representing people could have an effect on their lives and on the course of some policy, some decisions. Um, we have some big challenges in our own country that we have to grapple with, and we're not fully there yet. We say words like reconciliation and these things, but I'm not really sure the government has any idea of what they mean, and those things matter to me. Is that the biggest challenge facing the government from your perspective? It's one of them. I think climate change, just because it's so structural, it's everything we do. It's not a program. It's our way of life, and that shift... You see, you see these moments that come up, massive floods or fires, and people say, oh my gosh, climate change, we've got to do something about this, but we call it a crisis, yet yeah, don't treat it like one. And 
that First Nations reconciliation is huge for me. And maybe the place I've come to on that is that it's so difficult because it requires people to give up power. Places like this, like the national capital, like the federal government to share power. And they don't like to share power, historically. And well, it's a, it's a historical structure that's been in well, place for a long time. Yeah, right? it's colonial. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the idea of power over and land lies at the heart of everything. And the idea of sharing any of that, it runs exactly opposite to the way this place is built. And so, yeah, those are big challenges. I don't, I don't say they're small, yet I want progress. I, I insist on it. I think we should expect no less. Like, I think it, if we have the evidence in front of us and we know there's a right course in front of us, it just takes courage, then let's just find the courage. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> I've got to wrap this up. But thank you so much for joining oh, us. I appreciate we it. Didn't, we didn't take we'll a get, bite, Well, now we'll dig in. Yeah, yeah. Nobody needs to watch us eat. No. <laughs> oh, I learned that from the royal couple. Oh. This is an interesting story. Kate and Will were visiting the riding, and we were standing in front of a little food display that the Haida had put on, oh. or in Haida Gwaii. And I said, are you not going to have anything? Because yeah. it was beautiful food. And one of the royal couple said, well, that's the money shop. And I said, what, what do you understand? And the paparazzi are all there. And she said, well, you ever try to look good eating? Like Kate said this to you? Mm -hmm. And I said, Kate. I've never thought about this. And she said, well, it's, it's very difficult to look attractive or yeah. anything or presentable eating. Even, yeah. So we generally try to catch a photo of them eating in wow. public. Yeah. Don't think I've ever seen one. I'm not sure I have either. Yeah, no. So we, we won't do it either. Yeah, no, well, no. there'll about. just be some shots of us doing it. But, but yeah, nobody needs to speak, see all the spinach in my mouth. Yeah. yeah <laughs> anyway, thank you. you so much. My I appreciate pleasure. your time yeah, very much. Yeah, Enjoy. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast. Mm -hmm.